Hey guys, only five bucks a month to get access to my bonus podcast. So if you haven't got access to it yet, jump on over to relaxrunning.com slash join. Uh, we've already got seven podcasts up there with some of Australia's and the world's best runners and experts in the senior distance running. We've got another one going up on Wednesday with two-time Olympian Dave McNeil. So come and jump over for all that bonus material. Guest on the show today is a guy by the name of Raf Bohr. Now, Raf and I have a little bit of personal history. When I was about 13 years old, living in Western Australia, I really looked up to this guy uh, as a as a bit of a mentor. And though I didn't see him a lot, he always had plenty of encouraging words and plenty of guidance to offer. So it was uh, it was great. A couple of weeks ago in the members podcast, when Gr- Ryan Gregson brought up this guy's name as a real influence on his own running career, I thought I'm going to have to reach out to him. Uh, if you haven't heard of Raf before, he's based in Western Australia. He's a physiotherapist and a high-performance director. He's got 19 years of private practice physiotherapy experience across a range of sporting contexts, and he's one of Australia's most trusted experts in rehab, exercise prescription, load management, uh, all for endurance athletes. He's also uh, putting together, or he's, he's well and truly established, a marathon-specific training group over in Western Australia with some incredible depth and uh, for all you distance runners out there, hopefully all of you, for all you marathon runners especially, this is a really helpful um, conversation just about the the different facets of our training that we can focus on in order to really flourish across the marathon. It was a, it was a really great conversation and one that I, I left with, with even more than I anticipated, got more than I bargained for. So I'm excited for you to, to have a listen. Hey, as always, this episode is brought to you by Rundy's Undies Athletic Underwear. If you haven't checked them out yet, make sure you jump over to rundies.com.au. They've put together a 30% discount for all Relax Running members. So simply type in RELAX, R-E-L-A-X, 3-0, all in capital letters, uh, to make the most of that 30% discount across everything on their website. All right, guys, that's it from me. Uh, let me introduce to you Raf Bohr. Yeah, I reckon the last time I saw you would have been around 2001, which is when my mum and I were living over in Perth, training with Mark Saunders. And then we we moved back to Melbourne, which is which is where we originally sort of moved to Perth from. Back in it was December 2001, I reckon. So that's bloody 20 years ago, nearly. Yeah. Okay. It's gone quick. Yeah, so. I assumed you were from Perth. I thought you were a good bloke because you came from Perth. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe it just rubbed off on me real quick when I got there. We claim everyone. We claim Gregson even. <laughs> yeah, well, man, it's actually funny. I'd uh, I'd been having a bit of a look at your your website um, even before I spoke to Grego the other day, and he he came on like the members podcast, and because I thought he was originally a Perth boy as well, and uh, I sort of asked him about it, and I said, oh, like, do you know Raf? And he goes, yeah, yeah, no, Raf's a legend, and uh, it got me all sentimental because because I think my memory of you were pretty similar to how he was explaining you. So I thought uh, I'm going to have to reach out and see if you'd be interested in jumping on for a chat. Yeah. Oh, mate, it's, it's sort of uh, it's always good to chat about running, isn't it? And reflect on how everyone sort of once they find it tends to find a way to stay in it. It sort of becomes part of your identity. That's for sure. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true because you're. It's funny looking back. Your background I was reading is more in the duathlon. Is it triathlon scene as well? I didn't realise you've represented Australia so many times as a as an elite athlete yourself. Yeah, well, I suppose I think if you look back far enough, I think at school I was it was all football and cricket, but I was always sort of um, probably the best runner, but probably reluctant to or the best runner in our club or our school, but it was, wasn't really highly um, desirable like football or cricket was to be good at. So at about under 16 level, I was sort of in the state development squads for cricket. Um, I was sort of playing regional football, but I was pretty slight and I didn't have the concentration for cricket or the body for football. So my football coach was a guy called Trevor Bickle who had two um, gold medals in the Empire Games for the pole vault and he sort of encouraged me to more push on with running at the Melville Athletics Club, which is where he was. Um, And that's sort of when I started running about sort of 16 or 17. Um, So that's how it all started. Gee, and are you still running around for Melville these days? No. So um, I reckon I probably finished up with with Melville about – 
two years later and started running with Canning Districts where John Gilmore and a guy called Vic Nolan were based. Um, and that was just more because Vic was just more a little bit uh, closer in terms of training. He was training near where we grew up and it was closer to home. So I was with Canning until I was sort of retired. And then more recently, we've got our own little club, the Front Runner Club, um, where I suppose if I were to race, I'd probably put on that singlet. Yeah, beautiful, man. Beautiful. So your main focus at the moment is, I guess, your your, your physio work is it? I was having a bit of a look through your website and um, having a bit of a read about you and saw you working with Mark C. And I've been trying my best to reach out not just to athletes, but to expand the horizons a little bit to speak to professionals in and around the sport. And I've got a real soft spot for, for running physios, obviously, because you can relate so well to the, I guess, the personal struggles and issues that, that so many runners face. And my, my goal through this whole relaxed running website, podcast and everything is, is, is just to try and make a central place where people who otherwise might not have had access to some of the helpful information might be able to improve their own game just through through a little bit of insight. So is that is that what your big focus is at the moment? You're, you're working physio and dealing with a lot of athletes over there? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think my main, my main passion now is probably more coaching the marathon. And so, you know, Mark C is probably doing most of the physio now for us and he works with, um, with a lot of the top athletes. We've got another physio who's also sort of working. So it's sort of grown over the years to have like we've got three sort of full-time coaches, two full-time physios. So I, my real passion project is to try to build um, an elite marathon program and we've got now uh, two girls, one Rochelle who went to the World Championships, 234 and 236, um, uh, is Nira who's got second in Melbourne and third in the Oceania Champs on the Gold Coast. So they're two top girls. And then Nick Harmon, who's a young guy, ran 214.04 in Fukuoka. And a guy called Dean Menzies, who you would know also, um, Dino ran 219 um, just the other week, actually, before the COVID-19. She had everything down in in uh, Lake Biwa. So my main passion is the marathon, um, coaching that now. And I do a bit of physio with sort of some clients that I've, I've worked with for a number of years, but more managing the team and trying to, create a bit of a running culture which can get West Australian running up to world class with the team. I'll tell you what, that's some bloody good quality because obviously the, um, the the athletes going on in Perth at the moment, I had Big Rambo on, on here just the other day and had a bit of a chat to him, but just flicking through some of the names that have come out of Perth in, in recent years, there's been a, a bit of a highlight reel. I've, I've accidentally just chunked uh, Grego in that in that category in my mind. I know he's originally a Sydney boy, but in the back of my head, he's, he's from Perth, just like I am to you. But uh, yeah. the, the marathon, that, that's some solid depth, actually, in a, a state of WA for not necessarily renowned for huge yeah. depth in the distance running scene, but there's some, some pretty consistent numbers across the marathon there. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think that – so I suppose 10 years ago when we started the business, I think – I think growing up I was a bit nostalgic about Deke and Monner and marathon running and I always loved um, the character of the marathon guys who I met. I never ran one myself, which I think is actually a very helpful thing um, not to have attached too much bias to your own experience with it. I think I went to Kenya and spoke with Renato Canova. He's never run one either um, <laughs> in July uh, of this of last year and we're chatting and I think the marathon's such a, a mental thing that I think the danger is once you've done it yourself that often makes you less effective as a coach because you become too attached to the beliefs and the experiences you've had and not as objective as someone who's observing it without so much personal bias but that obviously could be me showing my bias to thinking that it's better not to be too attached but you know if you look at it um, my belief my fundamental belief when we started was that we could definitely produce a world-class marathon program here in Perth 10 years ago because we have the climate we're closer to Japan than Melbourne and Sydney, and I don't think there's any. There wasn't any great world-class marathon running in Australia for a lot of years, um, so I don't think anybody had a real competitive advantage in terms of coaching systems or or frameworks in Melbourne or Sydney. I think their advantages are in were in the middle distances. I don't think there was great marathon running happening anywhere. So I think if we got a good understanding of of what was required to train marathon runners and got a good squad. I was sort of firmly of the belief that we would be able to create the best marathon program in Australia and that's what our objective continues to be. And I think as we build that culture quite specifically um, with a definite bias to the marathon, we pick talent and push it in that direction a bit earlier. Whereas if you look at what Nick does with Melbourne Track Club, it, it's getting a bit more proximal. But for a lot of years, it was 
a secondary or tertiary consideration for his athletes. Mm. Um, and so the best talent for marathon running in Australia hasn't really been running marathons, I don't think. Um, so for us, if you take the belief that talent's evenly distributed around the world and Western Australia's got, you know, 1.5, 1.6 million people, if we have the best coaching systems and we access the talent, then we should be able to have the best ability to manipulate the modifiable parts of performance and create consistently high-performing marathon runners. And that's, that's I suppose, the hypothesis. And slowly, over 10 years, um, it's starting to show good signs that we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, well, it's really interesting to know that you're, you're targeting your group specifically towards the marathon. It makes a lot of sense as well. It's sort of, just thinking about it, it surprises me in a sense that more groups haven't tailored specific, like I know within certain groups, you've got your 1500 and your half marathons, your marathon runners, but they're, they're quite spread out in terms of what the training load for each of those events would be. It makes sense in my mind to really tailor a training program, which is so specific to the marathon, but what, what sort of gave you the idea to, to target your energies towards that and, and really start recruiting athletes to develop them into marathon runners? I think I think it was like probably seeing the likes of Monaghetti and Deke growing up and seeing Australians when they were the best in the world at something um, combined with a love of running. And then I think I really like the storytelling around the marathon. I think with middle distance, there's not as much sort of – you don't hear as many stories necessarily about the runners with the – with the marathoners, you tend to really get to know their character or perceive that you know their character because they get talked about with all this sort of um, almost mythical um, component of the 200Ks a week and, you know, they, they tend to take on a, a different type of position in culture. And if you look at the marathon runners now, like Monas could still make appearances all around the country uh, every single year since he's retired, same with Deke if they wanted to. But the, the middle distance and the track athletes don't have that same connection to a, a community-based uh, running organisation like fun runs that the distance athletes do. So I think there was part of that. Um, and then just thinking that it's one of those things where I think with the sprints and middle distance, it is a lot of the factors that contribute to performance are, you know, you can't modify them. You can't you can't create more fast-twitch fibres in somebody to make them sprint 100 metres in 9.9 seconds, whereas a marathon, you always feel as though if you've got good systems that if someone's willing to work hard enough, they can get to a good level and it's a bit more rewarding of someone's you know character rather than just their potential. So there's a bit more more things you can work on, you know, more things you can, you can change in that person with good training and good culture. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, Raph, what are you looking at? When, you, when you've got your eyes on someone who you think might be a potential marathon star, that you would like to get involved in your group. What are the features that stand out to you about what they're doing? Is it is it their character, their training, their um, their ability over the distance? Like, are there any key features that you think are oh, actually this would be a, a good guy or girl to incorporate into the group? Yeah, I think first of all, I think they they tend to be people who aren't um, normally they don't stand out as great athletes. So they've tended to got they've got a lot of self motivation, but they've never been the winner of the school eight hundred or the one hundred. So they They've enjoyed running and they've attached themselves to running, but they've never shown themselves to be really, really good. But that endurance comes out over time. And then the biggest thing, I suppose, from a physio background I look for is how symmetrical they run. So if there's a big asymmetry from one side to the other, as you add load in to training load towards um, maturity, it tends to be, I reckon, quite predictive of injuries. So I look for them to be you know, little and symmetrical. So when they move, they move efficiently. Um, so as you add training volume in, they tend to improve quicker uh, and more consistently and have a few less injuries. Mm. Um, and then they tend to be more introvert, the marathon runners as well, so they're more quieter. They sort of just they chip away, they work away, but they don't, they don't need a lot of attention. They're quite self-motivated and conscientious. Yeah, it's a good point. I think once you've got someone who – yeah, I hadn't really thought about the fact that as a marathon runner, you could pretty easily – see your, or overlook your talent or over or underestimate your ability if you are measuring how good you are based on your school 800 meter runs aren't you so to have someone to be able to spot talent especially when you've been in the sport for a long time like I'm 33 now I've been saying for for a while I've, I've, I've been looking at the sport for 20 years you start to get a bit of a gauge of whether someone's going to be good over 800 or the longer the longer runs in the marathon um, even your half marathon times don't necessarily always seem to equate into a really strong marathon time like even Zara's not I don't know how to say his name Tedesse the, Tedesse yeah yeah the little Eritrean like he smashed out some incredible half marathons but his his ability to be able to transfer that into the equivalent over the marathon distance just hasn't quite happened yet so 
Um, are there like when you when you're structuring this training program? I'm just keen because I know there's a lot of listeners who are marathon runners, um, and to be able to pick your brain about one of the or, or, or some of the the facets of training, whether that's strength or training load or um, build up for a particular marathon race. Like when you, if we were to have a sneak peek into your your group, how how do you sort of uh, plan a, a person who you've just taken on to? run a really good marathon i can imagine it's quite individual for some athletes yeah so if we look at say you know dean menzies who who just ran 219 in biwa so he started with us quite a few years ago so you're gradually building an athlete up over a few years but if we look just at his build up to say running that 219 marathon generally what we'll do is um two big marathons a year um two big ones and he ran 221 in melbourne in october and then 219 in um, Lake Biwa, and it was a pretty tough day in Biwa. So what we tend to do is we do like a, a bit of a SWOT analysis or review of how he went in Melbourne, and his peak mileage there was about 135 for his biggest four to five weeks. And so um, his 10K time was around 30.30. So what we look for is obviously they have to have a 10K ceiling or half marathon ceiling to work to, um, but then the, the, the volume of training tends to probably edge them closer to that speed for the marathon distance. So in the early part of the preparation, after we've done a review, we basically for the first month let him rest. Um, the next month try to re-establish a routine and our, our structure is pretty consistent for someone who's trying to be a professional um, or, or, or get to a really high international level in the marathon. It's a little bit different depending on what their goals are and what their experiences is. But for an elite runner like Dean, he will you know run twice on Monday just jogging He'll do some track work um, on Tuesday uh, and a jog in the morning, uh, a midweek longer run on Wednesday, a threshold run on Thursday. Um, he has a very, very light day on Friday or a rest day because he's got a young family and he's always been a little bit lower mileage, a few, a few sort of long-term issues with his sort of immune system before I started coaching him where he had a tendency to get sick and injured. So we try to allow for him to have Friday as a bit of a flexi day based on how he's going. Um, Saturday we do a tempo run over hills uh, mm. and then Sunday he's long run. And so over two or three months we build that up. And then um, the big thing is once we've built someone up, they'll be able to race a few half marathon or 10K races and, and go pretty well over that threshold-based distance. So I think in, in terms of the physiology of, um, of the half marathon and 10K, if we say that's the anaerobic threshold that we're trying to see in a race rather than the marathon where we're trying to see the aerobic threshold. I think what we do then is that three months where we're training the anaerobic threshold and building up conditioning um, is basically a segue into the marathon-specific training where we train the aerobic threshold, which is like the marathon pace or the fat max. And the big thing I think with um, spending time with Renato Canova is he really he's a sports scientist first who's basically moved away from it and just started to apply the principles removed from a, a clinical model and I think the problem for science in in running now is a lot of the time I think it confuses people who don't understand it and they fixate on on ceilings that aren't relevant to the marathon and the, the the ceiling that's relevant to the marathon is how fast can somebody run without producing lactate at all and basically or very small amounts and basically be using fat predominantly to fuel the performance so that they don't run out of energy and so that's what we do so we might if we assumed that Dean was going to run 2.20, we would do, in the Canova way, 6 by 4K at that exact pace with a small float recovery and try to really specifically target that biological pace um, so that his body was conditioned to the pace of the marathon. And we do two or three big hits with lots of rest around it. That really was at marathon pace. And then we back him off for two weeks. Um, and with all the software that we use, it's getting very accurate where if we time everything right uh, performance is reasonably predictable um, based on those specific sessions so for Nick Harmon who ran 214 or Dean or you know I think last year we had six guys break 230 for the marathon we, we're very accurate in being able to tell them what they should be able to do based on the science of of those specific training sessions at marathon pace so I think when people are trying to predict marathon pace from 10K or half marathon, it's, there's not enough correlation for that to be an accurate predictor. That, that The specific marathon sessions that we do, like for Nick, he did 4x7K um, and he did that 4x7K at 310K and he ran 309 in BWA. So, you know, it's very accurate if you do it right. 
um, and you have to make sure there's enough recovery for those specific sessions to be absorbed and also accept that there's going to be a fair bit of mental stress before someone does it. So that the athlete's almost getting themselves used to the same stress they're going to experience on race day mentally as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that mental practice that comes into um, the specific phase of training the marathon. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. What what software have you got your athletes using in order to be able to gauge some of their measurements and just see where they're at, which you use as your predictor? Uh, so we use Training Peaks, mate, which is we've been using for a lot of years. So say for young young Nick Harmon, I mean, he started with us in 2014 as a young guy who was a 35-minute 40-10K runner. <laughs> um, and if you had to run a marathon before, um, I had to run a 10K before we went to Biwa, uh, before we went to Fukuoka, I think he would have been you know, 28.50 to 29 flat. So you, you've got a whole story of how someone's physiology has progressed from a, a recreational runner who's just making the state cross-country team to a young guy now who's run, you know, 63.40 and, and 2.14 and you can you can allow him to understand how those changes take place and why by getting to that point through the strategies that we've used, there's a logical um, upside if we just continue to work on those same principles for a bit longer he'll continue to improve um, and continue to make big steps with all the things that we can continue to to build on and, and grow with yeah yeah i like your idea of, of coming at it from a bloke who hasn't actually had any experiences uh, in racing the marathon because i think actually just before i was speaking to you i was speaking to dave mcneil and one of the things we were talking about in the podcast is how you can get so close up to your problems and your experiences that you fail to see uh, an approach outside of the norm and, and one of the things I've noticed for, for quite a long time in Australian distance running especially is there seems to be a, a one-size-fits-all approach that every athlete whether you're a 1500 meter runner or a marathon runner seems to adopt and I know in some of the biggest groups around Australia it's just something that's it's sort of unquestioned so I'd be interested just to hear your thoughts on um, how relevant you thought that one-size-fits-all sort of project uh, or approach is because it, it seems like yours is quite scientific and, and, and can be quite modified and tailored um, just to suit a, a person's particular physiology and um, experience in the sport? Yeah, and I think I think for me, I look, obviously we've all looked at that model in, in, in Australia for a number of years that worked so well for, for Mona and Deke, but I think one of the guys who's really underestimated because he doesn't get a big platform, Dick Telford's a very, very smart guy. So if I ever have something that, so for instance, if you look at someone who comes to us as a recreational runner, to run marathons because we've got, you know, most of our clients are recreational runners. We had a high incidence of soft tissue injuries when um, we had the marathon runners who were coming from a more, they've come into the sport, say, in their mid-20s and they've never done running as a kid and their movement patterns are a little bit less developed but they're mentally very committed and they're, they're physically quite strong but they've never run a lot as a kid. So it's very hard to change the biomechanics of an adult. So we were finding that these runners who were maybe 240 runners plus or minus five minutes were getting a lot of these guys to between 235 and 245 for the marathon. If we did track work, they got a lot of injuries. So I called I called Dick and, you know, you draw on all his experience and he's able to really quickly and succinctly understand what you just described and say, well, look, Raph, if they haven't learnt to run at those speeds and then you're getting them to run at those speeds when they're tired, um, the neuromuscular system isn't adapted, neither is their muscular system, which is tired. So you're going to have problems. So if you go to the guru like Dick or or to someone like Canova, like for instance, last year when I went to Canova, it basically, he told me that I was coaching scared. So mm. when I was coaching people for the marathon, I was protecting them from the stresses that they needed to be exposed to, to run the marathon without fear. And he said, it's like a war. If you're sending someone to a war, you can't pretend they're not going to a war. So what are you doing? By making them uh, feel as though they're safe and in a good routine, you're not preparing them for the marathon. So they're running a marathon scared and they're performing at a moderate level because they're training in a moderate way. And what he does in Kenya with these guys is he basically trains them for the marathon and he tries to remove the fear because the biggest weakness in Western running in the marathon is you have people who are thinking so much about it that they're scared of it. Whereas what he says, you work them through that fear and you train them for it. And it's not actually scary at all if you train for it. It's yeah. just another run. Um, that's two hours long. And if you speak to anybody who's well conditioned for any context, it's scary for someone who's not prepared for it. But for someone who is, um, they're ready. 
And so that's the thing. You get these lessons off people who are who are wiser than you, like mentors, who are happy to share because they've reached a stage where they're essentially benevolent and well-meaning and they don't have anything to hide, so they'll share everything with you um, and try to help you if they see that you want to learn more about how to be more effective as a coach. So I tend to really look to older, more experienced people to give me advice because the science is so mate it's it's well understood we're sitting and talking about the same things all the time and i find if i sit with a group of peers they're often trying to impress each other yeah but they're not actually focused on their athletes and for me our focus as coaches is on our athletes and and i can learn off the great coaches and they'll tell me things that i need to hear and there's those aha moments where you know they they give you that snapshot that explains something that you've been stewing over for a long period of time so that's that's sort of how i try to learn now off off those really good coaches or reading about people like Deke, what he used to do from his perspective, not from a second or third-hand perspective. Read his book or read Mona's book or read a book on the great British distance runners of the 80s where you get these really great athletes 30, 40, 50 years ago who are running quicker than we're running now for the marathon. (laughs) And look at what they used to do. Yeah, yeah, man, it's such a good point. I really like like that take. I'm interested to hear a little bit about what Canovo thought was – Sort of not wrong, but why he thought you were training your athletes scared? What what particular elements of your training did he say you needed to improve or needed to adjust uh, from the way that you were sort of delegating the training sessions? Well, so what what we would do for for say a long time is we might have if a marathon runner was running a marathon, then three weeks out we would do a twenty five k run at marathon pace or goal marathon pace, mm-hmm. and five weeks out we would do twelve k's at. Um, 30 seconds slower than marathon pace, 12Ks at 15 seconds slower, and then 12Ks at target pace. Um, and what he he says, he's got to the point where – and the good thing is, like, he, he gave me uh, training diaries from from Kipsang, from Quembo, like guys who've run 327. He's shared everything with me in terms of all the training programs of his top athletes. He's very open now. I don't think he actually minds what he tells you. he tell you everything. But <laughs> I think um, – he, he hasn't got any fear left, you know what I mean? He's, he doesn't care now. He, he he's done it all. Um, he'll he'll give you an honest answer if you ask him a direct question. You're going to get you're going to get it from the horse's mouth. So, what what that means is that for him, he's like, well, that's 25 k's. They're going to be running 42. If you look at the stress of 25 k's at marathon pace versus 42, you can do the quick maths and say that's about say 60 percent, 65 percent of the stress of a race. Whereas what he said, you need to get them to 80% of the stress of the race in training so that you're getting closer to predicting how they're going to respond to the racing environment. So that might mean for Nick, we do, instead of doing 25K, we do 4 by 7 k and do 28. Now, it doesn't sound a lot, but if he's doing a 1K jog between reps and then he's doing a sort of 2 to 3K warm-up, 2K cool-down, then all of a sudden that training load is very different to just a, a 1K jog, 25Ks at race pace, and then another 1K jog. It's It doesn't sound very much, but it's a huge step closer to producing the same stress on the body as the marathon so that when Nick then goes and runs a marathon, he spends the first 21Ks just in the same rhythm he was in in a training session without any thought, without any um, – uh, need to overthink just to be running and then he can focus his attention more effectively to the end of the race where the race is going to be won and lost um, or where he's going to go from I think he went from like 50th at halfway to 13th he was able to really run on strongly a negative split 67 30 66 30 because if someone's having to worry about the first half of a marathon um, if they are worried or they're engaged they're burning carbohydrate and they're going to run out of it if they're running at a rhythm that's aerobic and they're burning fat, they're going to be watching the crowd, looking at spectators, talking to the people in their group, and they're going to be able to sustain the second half of the marathon really well because they've got carbohydrate reserve that they can use. So I think just things like that, little little things make a big difference. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, that instead of being 65% of race stress, if someone's an elite, be at 80. And then when they're used to 80, get them to 85. Constantly try to give them a new stimulus so they have to adapt. Um but make sure you do it at a pace and a rate that obviously you can you can build from that's not going to break them before they get to the race. Does mm. that make sense? Oh, 100%. I was actually thinking his name keeps coming up the last couple of weeks, but have you heard of John Quinn? Do you know John Quinn, the exercise physiologist? 
Yeah, I, I, I saw that you had him on the other week, but I haven't. I saw that on there. I was going to look into him a bit more. Yeah, man, he's a really great guest. He must be. He must be in his mid fifties or something. And he's just a, to be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time speaking to people from, with your background in, in the physio world and exercise physiology world. And one thing which you mentioned earlier about physiology in terms of just like uh, little imbalances that you notice in your technique, he, he went into quite a lot of detail in our chat the other day. And I was just, I was just so fascinated by it because it still blows my mind that for a bloke who spent so much time in the sport, there's little things that get thrown out like that where I, I think I can't believe I didn't know about this when I was a, a runner actually trying to improve. I don't know how it how it sort of skipped my attention, but he he was speaking about the uh, the ways that people are continually getting injured through those imbalances and uh, ways that you can address it, ways that you can adjust it. Um, and having a bloke like yourself as a coach with that as a background must be a great benefit when I guess consistency and and, and persistence is one of the key ingredients in improving the marathon. Is that something that you bring into your um, I guess your training schedules a lot when it comes to strength and when it comes to recovery, just uh, sort of ironing out any niggles and imbalances that there might exist? Yeah, I think for a lot of our – I think the thing to realise with running for people is that um, running as a, as a basically as a locomotive skill, someone's gait balance. Um, as physios, we're trained to think we can we can be interventional and really change things. I think if you look at the science of it, people's gait matures at a very young age. Before they're eight, a lot of 95% of their characteristics of their gait are sort of are developed. So we, we, for instance, have – we work in like – not at the moment, but we normally work in like 14 schools trying to just to really teach kids good fundamentals of running symmetrically and, and moving effectively in primary school. But the research is even that might be a little bit late. So – there's not so much – you've got to understand when's, when's a window of opportunity where we can make an effective change in an athlete. And I think, I think the biggest problem for Australian athletics is little athletics is probably teaching kids to compete when they should be having fun um, and learning skills. And then if they're going to learn to compete, I think the best way for kids to learn to compete is in a team sport where they actually learn to share responsibility but not be personally responsible for an outcome. And so the skills and then the psychology are developing together. And then through early um, high school, you start to see natural strengths developing in kids where they're more endurance or speed-based or whatever. But you still want to be developing both speed and endurance and continuing to work on, on skill and technique. But a lot of the time, it's, it's, it's God-given. It's a non-modifiable um, gift that a kid has to move symmetrically or not. So, for instance, I'll see a kid running at, and someone will tell me this kid's the next big thing, and I, I'll see it and say, no, he's not. And mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do is give that kid more load now because he's already asymmetrical. And if you keep loading him up, um, and we could give you 100 examples of runners I've seen of this nature, it's not going to be a good outcome. I can see 10 years into the future what that's going to look like, whereas I might get a little kid who, and I've got one in the group at the moment, who's 14, he runs 1,500 metres in 445, He's got a great head on his shoulders. He moves symmetrically. He's only running three times a week. He's playing rugby. He's very coachable. I can tell you in 10 years' time, if I just blow wind in that young guy's sails and tell him what I think he can be, this kid will be a 28, 30, 10K guy. Everything. You can see the future. If you can see what's going to happen and what you need to do, when, why, how, you know, you can predict things quite accurately. And the worst thing, I I think, in young kids is to treat them like little adults um, because – if you understand the different things that are changing at different times, a lot of them aren't within that kid's control. So if you if you act as if what you see is an end product, you haven't let the natural development process take place. You just need to, I think, be very careful, you know, being too interventional too early, make sure kids love running, get enjoyment from running, get enjoyment from movement, and then let, let things play out more slowly because a lot of it's not controllable by us. It's just natural biology and genetics of that kid. Mm. It's, I like that. It's, it's quite a holistic or quite a broad approach to what performance means. I think uh, you can so easily get caught up at looking at what a 14-year-old kid's getting around 1,500 metres in and go, okay, he's going to be a, a next star. But you've just mentioned the, the head on his shoulders, the fact that he's very coachable. Are there, are there other facets that you look at when it comes to uh, nurturing an athlete like that? So uh, the, the coachability, the head on his shoulders, the um, the load that they're taking on. Like where else do you uh, sort think- of – yeah, the biggest thing for me is if the parents are encouraging but unbiased. So mm. 
if if the parents are biased and the parents talk in a meeting to me about the child, it's invariably not going to end well. If a young kid's parents sit there and say, look, Johnny loves running or you know, Tegan loves running, what should we do with it? And, and they're just there encouraging the kid who's got a natural bias, that's always going to end very well because young people, if you just encourage them um, and you give them good role modelling, um, and I was chatting to Peter Boll just the other day about this, how a teacher at school just encouraged him to keep running, just mm. Pete, keep running. His parents loved him, but they didn't love him because he was a good runner. They loved him because he was Peter. And so the parents just trust that he'll find his way and then someone comes in who who's encouraging, who's external, and, and then from there it just continues to progress. So I think if the parents are getting some sort of identity um, status from the child's success, uh, it's always very precarious. Um, whereas if the parents just want to see their child happy and healthy and the child starts to show an interest in running and then they solicit some advice, then that's a very good platform, I think, for, for long-term success. Yeah, so you've got quite a broad range of ages of, of athletes that you're working um, with then because one, the, one of the big memories that I have of you as a as – a, how old are you, man? How, what age are you now? 42 now. Gee, so you're not that much older than me. It's a, it's a, I'm 33, but it's amazing when you're 13 years old what a 21-year-old bloke looks like to a, <laughs> to a young fella. So, so my, my memories of you back in Perth was um, when, whenever I was lining up or, or you know, anywhere near you, you are always very encouraging – um, you always sort of cheered me on. I, I felt like you've got that real nurturing spirit, for lack of a better word, to to make sure that these kids are encouraged, not just for the fact that they're a fast runner, but for their, that they're a valuable person, which I guess goes hand in hand with in, improving performance. Is that is that something that you try and – have you cultivated that in yourself or, or, or where does that sort of, um, I, I guess, desire or just talent to be able to nurture that, that person uh, that's so much bigger than just the person as an athlete come from? Well, I think, you know, if you look where I grew up in Williton, my football coach was a two-times Commonwealth Games pole vault gold medalist, a guy called Trevor Bickle. Um, my basketball coach was Alan Black, who was a Wildcats coach. His son, Stephen, in our team, played for the Wildcats. So we had really good – Jeff Marsh played cricket at Williton. Well, didn't play cricket, but his kids played cricket at Williton, so he was living in the area. So we had these really good role models who were just really good blokes. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, if I'm – never going to be as good as these guys and they treat people with sort of respect and encouragement, then there's probably um, a good metaphor for not getting too far ahead of yourself. If you're, um, if, if you're able to relate, connect and inspire people, then that's a bit of a blessing for you, not necessarily something that you, you, you want to sort of get too far away from. So I think it's sort of the values you grow up around um, and where I grew up, it was very, very encouraged by people who were really successful. So I suppose you try to pay that forward a bit. And then I think with athletics, I mean, I think if you look at how long it takes for a young athlete to reach their potential, the research um, that we read says 15 years. But we say someone like Rochelle Rogers, who's been running for 20 years and she ran 2.34 for the marathon last year. Um, I mean, she's now been running for well over 20. So you realise it's such a long game that you, you want to make sure people enjoy it. You don't want to add stress to assist them, you want to make sure there's enjoyment so that young person will continue to persist and, and go through enough of a journey in the sport to reach their potential because the body's, you know, is very smart and intuitive. So if you look at aerobic metabolism or strength in a muscle or um, mental resilience, all these things are so hard to build and take so long to build that if you try to create stress in the environment where those things are being developed, you tend to short circuit the the, the development of them. So if you look at like the last few years of an athlete's career, they might not be any fitter, but by being in that environment one or two times before and maybe having something they've reflected on that they could have done differently in that same situation, at the same fitness, they'll get a chance to run 30 seconds quicker in a marathon or 40 seconds quicker because at some point in the race, deja vu will kick in with 5Ks to go and they'll say like three years ago I was in this situation and I didn't dig deep enough, I'm going to dig deeper today. And that all those experiences of that athlete add up over all their life and then their mind just draws a bit of experience, a bit of resilience that they've aggregated through all that work to execute a 30 to 40 second better marathon. And that could be, that could be for that person something that made all that extra three or four years of work worthwhile. 
Mm. But it's taken all those years to learn those lessons. So I think if you understand that, it's very transferable to business or to family or to life. So I think for a lot of people, running gives them a really good perspective to work through a range of things, um, not just in in running. Yeah, yeah. I think impatience in a in a lot of ways, especially when you're younger, is is one of the biggest obstacles, I think, to performance as well because people think, oh, like I know that the best athletes in the world are training so hard and running so far that I better just do it now. And I sort of fell into that category as a young kid because I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm 13. I've got to be 21 when I'm running the world's best times. <laughs> it's just mm. uh, it's an unnecessary pressure that, as you say, it takes the play away from the sport and it made it far more serious than I think it needed to be. And I guess that, that's the beauty of hindsight. You can look back and go, oh, far out. I would have adjusted that. But I think if I had you, and I, I think I literally did have you telling me just to, to slow down, enjoy the process a little bit, but it, it, it's so easy just to go straight over the top of a young kid's head, and that probably I think that says a lot more about the person listening than the person speaking, but um, I, I guess that's a problem that doesn't go away with the new generations that are coming through. Is that something that you've had to navigate with the young kids in, in just dealing with their patients, or is that more of something you try and imprint to their parents and, and help them just nurture that talent as, as they're growing, through, growing up? Yeah, so I think what, what the biggest thing in our model is, I think most athletics groups operate in what I would call an autocratic bubble. So what that means is in a very small, narrow demographic of people, um, you might have, say, a coach who coaches a huge range, and this is in every state around Australia, a group of 15 to 20 13 to 17 year old kids and trains them as if they're Olympians and they don't have a single athlete in that squad who's over 17. Mm. But time and time again, those athletes then leave the sport at 17. But no one looks at that as a system and says, that's a flawed system, that's a bubble and bubbles always burst. And so for us at Front Runner, we have we invest in coaches. So our coaching manager, Ben Green, who's just a, a jet of a young guy. He's been with us for 10 years, super smart, does a lot of work with all our coaches. The key I say to him is never let a bubble form under our watch. So if we've got 14 schools and 300, 400 kids in our primary school program, they need to understand that that is not a finished product. That is a skill development program. And if a parent thinks that it's not pushing their child hard enough, we don't conform to the child, to the parents' expectations because the goal of that program is not to create finished products. It's to get kids to feel skillful and confident in movement and to get exposure to athletics and enjoy and fall in love with the idea of moving and moving more efficiently. And what that might mean is that that girl at that school, after she's had kids, feels comfortable um, going out and running from her house to lose weight and blow off some steam. It doesn't mean she has to be a world-class athlete. So that program is about skills, self-efficacy and confidence, and that's all that it is. And if someone wants more, let them go. And then the junior development squad, we have two sessions a week um, that we try to get the kids to do, one that's based on speed, one that's based on endurance. And what we'll find is kids who are doing little athletics want more. Again, our program is about developing what's optimal for that child. We want them to be playing other sports. We don't want them specialising. So if you want something else, off you go. Mm. And then from 14, 15, we start writing programs. And again, we have strict criteria into how many times a week they can run until they're 17. And then at that point, if they come to us, and this is the key, if you wait for the kid to come to you and say, I want to run for Australia, and they say it, at the point at which they've got all the skill, all the confidence, all the motivation, and then they come and say they want to do it, then it's as good as done. Mm. I can tell you two people have come to me and say, Raph, I want to run for Australia, and both have done it. If I tell them they could or say, you know, you can, it doesn't work. They have to have it in their character to want to do it, and if they say they want to do it, then every roadblock that comes up, they're ready to tackle. Yeah. But if you're telling them to do it, then you're having to deal with every roadblock for them and that can't work. So when you're building someone up, you've got to understand that it comes from them. It doesn't come from you. You can create a framework where ultimately our job in our front runner framework is to get as many kids as possible when they get to 17 or 18 say, I want to find out how fast I can run. And before then, we're just putting them on the right track. 
Um, and then once they make that decision, once an, a young person has a clear focus and a clear desire to do something, um, that's a very powerful energy um, mm. that you can then mould and work with. And that's when we get serious. When they leave school, when they've got all the choices in the world, um, young Nick Harmon, like I said, at 18, he was a 33-40 10K runner in high school. No one over East would have heard of him. And he came to me after going on his gap year where everyone was drinking and partying, and he goes, Raph, it's just not for me. I really want to go after this running thing. And so then I drew him a spreadsheet of what the next 10 years would look like, and the little bloke's just gone to work. <laughs> and, you know, he's 2.14 now, but mark my words, when, when, he, when, when you see the finished product, he's going to be very, very good. Yeah, is that, what, what, I, don't, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but what could you, what could you see him running? Again, he'll, he'll tell that story. Yeah. Uh, he, his running will tell that story. I, we can have that discussion in private, but, you know, for him, I don't, he's, the pressure, yeah, he puts a lot of pressure on himself. He's very motivated. But, yeah, just keep watching. It'll be, it'll be good for people who love running to see a really humble young kid just who, who races. He's got – it's funny, a few of the really good marathon runners we've got have a background in martial arts. They have this real quiet confidence, um, and he's a very good – athlete when it comes to racing he's very stoic he's got a black belt in taekwondo so he's he's tough little bugger he's a, he's a tough little guy <laughs> oh, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to be with him with five k's to go it's like <laughs> yes. being in a vice you know he just turns the turns the screws a bit you know it's yeah. good Gee, now that's exciting do you do much work with coaches because i feel like the way you're talking it's it's so practical so helpful but it's not uh, an approach that I feel like I've experienced a lot coming up through junior ranks and even in senior ranks that I, I think a lot of the boxes that you're ticking through the way that you're speaking are just boxes that are left blank, um, which is a big problem with the maybe the, the, the system in a lot of senses all around Australia in different groups. Are, are you guiding coaches and helping them with this stuff? Because I can't believe I haven't heard more about this until today. Well, I think, I think the problem is for, for me is I've always probably had the same – the same bias and I don't know where it comes from but when I was a physio I found I would go to conferences and um, everyone would talk about how much they knew but no one would talk about their clients and I always found and I find coaching more and more the same is it's like the coaches are focused on peer-to-peer recognition and peer-to-peer but they don't talk about their athletes and so for me when I wake up in the morning I don't think about other coaches first and foremost, I think about my athletes. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just to do with what's your fundamental bias. Um, and that bias for me of focusing on my clients, focusing on my athletes, focusing on my immediate team that I work with and trying to be as – and then having my own family and um, and stuff. I tend to find that keeps me pretty busy, but I always am happy to help anybody. And like I say, I, I do reach out to people who I think I can learn from quite regularly um, and, and sort of um, – people who I really respect and some good mentors that I've got in business and, and different things. So I'm always there to try to help someone if they ask, but I find that there's a lot of um, focus that we have in the daily environment and um, it's not a huge amount of, of extra time. But if I do do sit around with other coaches, I find myself, or it's the same as I did with other physios, I find myself not wanting to go to conferences or symposiums and those things too much because it becomes about um, impressing each other, not about helping our athletes and I, I find that just wasted time for me sometimes so does that make any sense oh 100 yeah it makes so much sense i have no interest in in, in sort of uh wasting time so if it's not going to be helpful or i don't feel as i'm going to learn um then i try to avoid situations that are going to going to be sort of demanding of time but not deliver a huge return yeah, yeah, no, that, that's really good. That's really good, Raph. I'm, mate, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I've just got my eye on the clock and I'm aware that we've, we've got about 15 minutes left to chat, so I'm trying to uh, just get some, some little nuggets of wisdom out of you, a few more nuggets of wisdom. It's been filled with it. But, um, mate, I, I know there's a lot of marathon runners or distance runners that, that listen to the show that are they're quite new to the sport. Um, they didn't necessarily have that upbringing and their goals aren't to uh, to run in the Olympics or, or to even be the best in Australia, they're just trying to improve their marathon performance and 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 use it more as a personal challenge than than anything else. Um, I'm just really interested to to ask you about if there's any practical ways that you would encourage a person like that who you know they they might be in their mid 30s and and just developed a bit of a love for the sport but not a hundred percent sure where to start apart from um, just the old oh I just need to run more. Uh, where would yeah. you start with someone like that? Well, so I think the biggest um, thing for, for the, the recreational runner is we, we coach them with three fundamental KPIs that, that we track 
the first thing is is that we can't improve performance if we're sick or injured. So the biggest KPI for us is days missed. So we, we want to make sure that whenever you're doing anything, either whether it be um, you know volume or intensity of training, it has to be sustainable. So for a recreational runner who's got a lot of life stress and a lot of um, you know work stress around running, it's really important that you're honest about that context and you don't um, get too emotional about um, trying to do everything and, and fit everything in as if you're a full-time professional. So the first thing is to really get a solid, honest, pragmatic look at how much life stress that person has if they've got a, a, a challenging job or a, a busy family life, those sorts of things. And, and then be honest about the fact that less is more if more would cause injury or illness. So we, we, we don't want to miss days because as you build consistent days of training and months come years and years become multiple years that we're going to see your best running a long time in the future so it's best to do less repeatedly than more and then stop start stop start so the first thing is don't miss days the second thing is volume is more important than intensity for the marathon runner so we've got 91 sub three hour marathon runners now that we've coached in our, in our programs and so we've got a big massive pool of data um, and if people want to look at it, our website, frontrunnersports.com.au, has our latest sort of data review of people who have run under 220, 230, 240, 250, three hours, and all the different correlations and metrics that they need to hit. But what, what we'd say is that the, the volume per week and the volume per year is, is the most important thing for you just having the muscular endurance to, to run out the marathon because, and fuel the marathon because the marathon is limited primarily by muscle endurance and fueling. And so the volume that you do of training over time is going to make you much better at, at creating energy in the muscle and sustaining muscle function um, for the distance of the marathon. And then something like a, a 10K or a half marathon speed session each week, a, a threshold session that they're doing, um, a park run, something that gives them an indication of, a, of an anaerobic threshold or a VO2 max that is going to be something that their endurance will build them towards. So if you look at the average three-hour marathon runner that we coach, they would have run between 35 and 40 minutes for 10K, and they'll run between 70 and 130 Ks a week if they're between, say, 245 and three hours. And what you'll find is the person who runs 70 Ks a week probably runs 35 minutes for 10K, and the person who runs 40 minutes has probably had to run 130. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you either have to have a lower ceiling but do more work to get there, or you have to have a high ceiling um, and you can get away with a little bit less work to get under that three-hour mark. So I think, by the way, if you wanted to optimise your performance, the, the way to do that is with more volume uh, for the marathon um, without missing days and while maintaining some sort of speed work in your program each week. Yeah, great. And are you getting these guys in the gym on a regular basis as well? What does the sort of strength and rehab part of their process look like? Yeah, so I think that's a good point, mate, because I reckon anyone who's over, say, 35 as a male, the research says they're really starting to lose testosterone and, and they're going to recover much slower than what they did probably when they were 25 or older. You start losing testosterone and some of that recovery um, speed will be less. So I think as soon as people start losing natural testosterone, I think it's good to start potentially slowly reducing or maintaining the volume of running and adding in some gym work. But I think if you add it in too early, you might have too many different conflicting things happening that um, that interact with each other in a way without really adding too much value for a long-distance runner. So I think the first thing is if you wanted to be the best long-distance runner you could be, you want to build up your volume, build up a really good balanced weekly structure, and then if you start to hit a plateau but you're still motivated and you still have time, then that's a good time to add in strength work. But I don't think you try to do everything at once. Mm. Um, and so if you look at Rochelle, so she was a 243 runner when she was running 140Ks a week and not doing gym. And then when we added in the gym um, for six months, she became a 234 runner when the gym <sighs> got added in and she couldn't fit around her day anymore um, running because she was just short on time, but she could squeeze in two good quality gym sessions during the day um, and that would get her the extra benefits and the extra adaptations to run a bit stronger when she was tired. So I think strength work, I think definitely as you get past your 20s, um, but if you're a bit like speed work with running, if you've started young and you're an elite athlete and you've developed good patterns from a young age, you can probably keep it in if it's been integrated into your program from a young age 
um, you'd keep it in the whole time. But if you've never done it, um, wait a little bit later to introduce it once you've got everything else sort of dialed in that's more specific to running. Yeah. Mate, who are some of the uh, – the when you, you've mentioned a couple of names of people that you've looked up to and sort of gone to for guidance and advice yourself, are there are there any other people that you would recommend the audience checks out as, as – um, as well as the names you've already mentioned? Because I, I know there, there seems to be a real passion. Like I thought when I started this this project that most of the attention would just be on the, the big names that come on the podcast, but there's a, there seems to be a real um, just desire for practical advice, uh, advice on how to just dodge these common injuries that so many athletes are faced with. So I've, I've got a feeling that the audience might be hungry for a, a, a few other wise voices to follow. Yeah, well, I think I reckon these podcasts, like the people you're getting, I looked at yours, unbelievable. They're sort of, I think what what really what's really important, I think, is and and look, I'll put my hand up and say we own a running store, we have running physio, we have running coaches, but like when we whenever we do anything in our business, we basically see running as our god, and we're just sort of trying to make sure we provide an environment where people who love running can get quality services. We're not trying to make you know as much money as we can today from running. You know, we don't try to – but I think when running went bad, if you look at the 1970s when Frank Shorter won the Olympics and you look at what happened when running became a commercial entity, is a whole a whole generation of people before that, when they got content, they got it from people who knew running, loved running and were, you know, and were really committed to the betterment of running. Mm. And then with the running boom, all these commercial entities, and I would – I would even include people who show a bias towards commercialising running and have an interest in running, but their first bias is making money. Things mm-hmm. like, you know, certain magazines that we can get, certain footwear manufacturers, all these companies, their main drive is is now revenue and money. And the narrative that they sell is popularist, low-quality content, you know, five five weeks to your fastest 5K, 10 weeks to your fastest 10K. Mm. To sell a magazine every month, you have to create new content every month. Yes. And that content becomes very poor quality where it has to change every month to keep it from – it, it grabs the attention, but it diverts attention from what really is essentially something that doesn't change very much. To get good at long-distance running, go and read what Rob DeCastilla did. Mm. Go and read what, you know, Charlie Speeding did. Go, go and read about any great runner and find it from the horse's mouth. Don't listen to someone who's two-bit journalist trying to sell a magazine with a fancy glossy cover because that's not distance running. Mm. And so you guys are bringing back that storytelling from people who know running who don't have that tendency to want to go and sell it every month. They're living it, breathing it. Uh, it's their identity, right? So I reckon the more you can hear it from someone who just loves it, the more that you're going to get good feedback from someone who's got a huge amount of experience um, and who really understands it. Whereas if you're buying the narrative on the internet or um, in a magazine that changes every month, you're just getting pushed every which way and they're selling fast fitness like fast food, mate, and people buy it and Mm. it sends them on the wrong path. Whereas I think you guys talking to people who love running, you know, some of the guests when I see you guys or inside running, I hear who's coming. I'm like, oh, well, I better tune into that. That's going to be awesome to hear what they say. Um, there's so many great people in running, and you guys are giving them a voice again, which I think is great. Yeah, it's good. It, it's almost, it is. It's almost the opposite approach, isn't it? Like the, the approach that you've just spoken about from nurturing a kid all the way up to their uh, you know, their, their fully matured self and got the desire to try and run fast is a very different story to yeah, the, the, the five points to your fastest 5K, which yeah, it, it's strange that it sells so well because it seems to be something that you, are, that you can see straight through, but I guess that's what sells papers and stuff as well for whatever reason. Tyson, you know that you can't, it's a hard sell. Hard work's a hard sell. Look, if you look at the, the hypothesis that, that I have, right, it's that if we can get 10 West Australian kids who can break 29 minutes for 10K and can commit for a few years to run running 180Ks a week, then we're going to have a handful of sub-210 marathon runners. Now, that's easy to say, but we haven't we – haven't, it's very hard to do that in our culture because that's a huge amount of investment for a young person to give to me or to give to a program without any huge financial return, without any um, guaranteed of social status or social credibility. So you've got to be um, aware that there's so many choices for people out there now and that choice comes at a huge cost, which is why, you know, for say young Nick or anyone, you have to wait for them to choose to follow that path because 
it's a path that comes with um, no guarantees of anything other than personal development. It doesn't come with a guarantee of commercial, you know, return or or anything. So, you know, you have to let someone choose that path. And as a path, it's, it's a challenging one. And so you can understand why people think it could be too hard for them mm-hmm. um, because it takes such a big commitment. But I think on the other side of that commitment is a lot of development that's transferable to other parts of life and um, and can give you a lot of, you know, a lot of confidence in yourself to take on other things in work or or challenges that come up um, with a bit more sort of self, self-assuredness and a bit more confidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's right, mate. I could honestly, I could speak to you for hours. I reckon we're we're nineteen years over uh, over a due date for a, for a phone call. So if uh, if you're interested, mate, I'd love to I'd love to have you on here more more often because I feel like we've just scratched the surface of a couple of things that I'd love to pick your brain on a little bit more. But hey, that was a that was a bloody good start. Mate, appreciate the time. Good to hear you still. You're you're back in the sport, mate. I do remember you as a little whippersnapper, just chirping away in the in, in the days at Yokine Reserve. And I'm actually I'm actually running around there tonight. So it's a funny sense of deja vu, mate, that we're chatting. And I remember you charging around there years ago when you were a little tacker. <laughs> it goes fast, eh? Oh. Beautiful, mate. Hey, thanks a lot, Ralph. Really good to have you on. See you, mate. All Take right. care. See you later. Bye.